to be a language teacher, you have to love children. You have to love the language, you know, loving our, our community enough to see that the impacts that this language teaching will have on our healing and recovery process as community members. Hello, welcome to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. I'm your host, Leah Lam. And I'm your other host, Co Primo. Me Gwaits for joining us today. Native Lights is, at its core, a place for Native folks to tell their stories. And every week we have wonderful conversations with great guests from a whole lot of different backgrounds and uh, just a, a wonder, wonderful mixture of passions. And we talk to them about their gifts and how they share those gifts with their community and centering around you know, finding purpose in our lives and amplifying Native voices. Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff to cover. And uh, we're, we're back at it again. How you doing, Leah? Pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. Just uh, hanging in there, trying to ignore any cold symptoms I might have. But that's, <laughs> that's it. That's, that's the way this time of year is. How about you, Cole? Doing great. Uh, it's, as we record this, uh, there's like an impending winter storm. So it's just a lot of uh, work uh, going around that at, in my <laughs> in my day job because you know mm-hmm. it's, you got to keep people informed on that. Mm-hmm. Well, you keeping up on shows? I was going to say uh, on our <laughs> on our Native Lights show, we like to bring in some pop culture references, especially when there's a Native angle to it, of course. Um, and The Last of Us, uh, yes. the most recent episode that we've seen, had a couple familiar faces. Uh, Graham Greene of Dances with Wolves fame, and Elaine Miles. Uh, people may know her from the TV show Northern Exposure, or the person driving the car in reverse in <laughs> the movie Smoke Signals. Yep. Uh, so that was great to see, and I, I I sent a little clip out, and I know you had a funny take about that show, so I just wanted to mention that. Well, it was just so funny because they're on. So The Last of Us, you know, end of the worlds. There's a vi- not a virus, but a fungus in in um, taking over people's bodies, etc. Mm-hmm. And the the main protagonists, Joel and Ellie, run into Graham Green Green's character and Eileen Miles's characters in just a cabin in the woods. I looked at that mm-hmm. and I was like, "Hi, hey, that's our dad living out there." <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course. They're like, don't go west of the river. Whatever you do, the Indians being all, <laughs> there's danger past there. And I'm like, let me guess what they're going to do. <laughs> Immediately cuts. And then what do they do? <laughs> <laughs> but it's to be seen whether it's, yeah. you know, positive, negative, et cetera. Before watching that cool episode with a uh, couple of native guests, I had a, the wonderful opportunity to jam with my nephew, Marvin, when we were right. at a little family dinner on uh, Sunday. Mm-hmm. And that, that was really great. We, uh, it may have been our first like official jam session, so that was <laughs> pretty wonderful. We played the theme to <laughs> Last of the Mohicans, of course, because why yep. not? It's uh, very on-brand. On <laughs> yeah, no, with the bass going, with the... With the Yep, the Marvin was on bass. bass. You were on guitar. You were telling was, him what notes to play. Yeah, the vibes were great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cool. 
Yeah, I, I, I thought it was a good thing to mention because it, it relates to our episode. Um, you know, it, Marvin obviously has talent, skill, uh, natural, a natural ability uh, with that, but there's also, you know, people around him who have nurtured that talent, including you and Dan, of course. But, you know, also his teachers have aided in his development. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that definitely relates to our episode today concerning early child care education. It may be a bit younger than Marvin's age, uh, yeah. what we're talking about now. But nonetheless, you know, children are the future. Teachers are an integral part of, you know, the, of society and providing education for the next generation. We are talking to Jewel Akorin. Jewel is assistant Wapitan Nation citizen, a community activist, and the executive director for Wichoye Nanda Kikandan, a language immersion preschool located in Minneapolis. There, she pursues her commitments to early childhood education and language revitalization. Um, she also does work addressing intergenerational historical trauma. And so we'll definitely talk about the school, but ho- also hope to hear about all her other passions and uh, more about her story. And here she is, Buju. Hello, my relatives. I greet you all with a handshake from my heart. Um, I am Sisitwan Dakota in uh, Sichungu, Rosebud, uh, Lakota. So, but I grew up here in the uh, Minneapolis area, South Minneapolis. You know, I went to Phillips, Seward, and South High. Um, so have, uh, grown up here in the Minneapolis area and a large part of my work, my career has been in the native nonprofit sector. Um, so giving back to the community is, um, pretty important to me. So how are you doing? Uh, how's your family doing? Well, I have a large family. <laughs> I, have, <laughs> um, I have like, um, eight, I had, I had, we come from a family of nine plus my mom and dad. So we had 11 of us. And then um, we all grew up here. Most of us, a couple of us were born out of Montana, um, South Dakota, but most of us were born here in the cities. I have three children, adult children, and then I have several grandchildren. So I'm a grandmother. I'm a great grandmother. Um, And, you know, I think um, in terms of family, my family has experienced a lot of the, uh, trauma, addiction, um, some of those painful topics that have um, hit a lot of our families and a lot of our Native families. Um, I'm raising grandkids. Um, so I'm on my second round of kids from age six to right now, um, almost 17. And um, so we have our ups and downs, you know, we continue to pray for a healing and recovery. Um, and I think um, I'm not raising my grandkids in the cities. I now live in the suburbs and I commute to work. So um, I think there's a um, an energy that's in the Minneapolis area that's like a vortex, I call it. And it's real hard to get not get kind of sucked dipped into that that vortex of that involves using and some harmful, risky behaviors for sure. Thanks for sharing that, Joel. What is on the top of your mind? today. Is there something that's important to you that you'd like to get started with, start chatting about? Well, you know, as we asked about my family, I think one of the, and with a health background in behavioral health, I have a master's in behavioral health. And um, I've really kind of segued that into how does our community recover um, from 
the genocide that happened here in the Americas. Um, and that is a topic that is not often acknowledged, I believe, um, or it's rarely discussed in terms of those uh, that umbrella and all of those kind of social economic factors that trickle down from that genocide that's happened here. And so as we talk about uh, the program I work for, we choye Nandagi Kanden, um, how language revitalization is a pathway to recovery. Um, we've seen that happen with many of our families where the kids bring this language home. We all know, or many of us are aware of how language was disrupted in our communities through the boarding schools, kind of that forced uh, relinquishing of our language and that forced learning of the English and what those uh, kind of subsequent consequences that happened in our family dynamics. Um, and so language then is becomes a, a pathway to recovery for our community. Um, and so those are recovery is is something I'm passionate about. Um, having been impacted, my parents were boarding school parents. So they they were taken at five. Both my parents were taken at five. Uh, my father was able to hang on to his language, and I, and in spite of the challenges that happened in those born, abusive behavior that happened in those boarding schools, and my mother never spoke Dakota again. She understood it, but she just went answer back in Dakota. Um, and then you kind of talk about those shame and the the fear and some of those other factors that go in with the loss of language, and how do we begin to recover? that language. I, uh, both of our Dakota and Ojibwe languages are, with the Dakota being critically endangered and the Ojibwe language not being far. I've worked in language for a long time now. Um, since this program first started with Dakota Ojibwe Language Revitalization Association, they did a lot of foundational work at the legislative level, and they introduced a bill with our language champion, Karen Clark, that Minnesota uh, supports language revitalization. And they opened their classrooms in 2006. Um, we've been here ever since then. And the reason I say is uh, that we're here as a nonprofit is because language continues to be very important to our community. Um, and people want their child to know their ancestral, their tribal language. So that is one of the reasons we still exist. I also believe that it, families understand somehow that it, 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 can, it, it is a pathway to recovery. Um, and we've seen this happen with some of our families. We're introducing traditional foods to families. We're introducing songs and, you know, um, language. And the kids kind of open that door again for families that maybe either put it on a shelf, forgot about it. And um, they bring that language home. And the amount of joy that we see in our elders, our community, that positive reinforcement when our kids are singing their songs, when they're coming and greeting each other, little tiny ones, 18 months, you know, speaking the language. Um, the amount of joy that brings to some of our elders and our family members in the community kind of really reinforces that this is what we need to be doing, you know, starting at this early childhood level to recover that loss of language. It's a, a way to help save our languages for sure. Mm -hmm. I think that's really great. And um, as we continue to talk more about the school, maybe you could tell us what Wichoye Nandagekendan means. Well, as Wichoye is uh, words, learning words, learning words in Dakota and Nandagi Kanden, I think it means place or space, like a place to learn words. 
workplace space, um, as I understood. Nandagi Kane Nandagi being Ojibwe and Wichoye being Dakota. So a place to learn words, um, place to was the name that the founding mothers um you know kind of arrived at that point. Um all of our founding mothers were in early childhood education and they had did a lot of like say foundational work in terms of um research, gathering elders and Back in pre two thousand six, and maybe even a little after, there was there were so many elders that would come to these gatherings, and they went to every single reservation. And I, I was able to be included in some of those trips to those reservations. But um, to hear the amount of uh, pain some of the elders felt so bad that they either couldn't speak their language or they weren't able to pass their language on, um, were some of the the the, the thoughts that came out of those language. Um, gatherings lots of tears and pain in those first initial gatherings and how far we've come and how far and how much we've lost too because we lost so many of our elders you know Um, we used to be able to bring elders together and just get them together and speak and there's there's here in the twin cities i think you know so again um just something to be aware of for those of us and i think most of us are who work in language that are aware that um, you know, our languages continue to be in critical conditions. So, yeah, and I think it's so lovely that it's a combination of Dakota and Ojibwe. I think the narrative that has been pushed through the education system that we were uh, tribal nations that really were at war with each other. Um, and we know as the um, Ojibwe folks were migrating down, the trade wars that happened, and the Dakota folks that were living in that particular area. Um, and the narrative that we had to have the government come in and settle these these wars between us. Um, but in fact, we know if you look at the bigger picture, the the treaty negotiators, the industry folks, and the folks in government were kind of all it would be considered insider trading nowadays, but they were all kind of collaborating because really what they wanted was the land up north. They wanted the timber, they wanted the water, they wanted the mining. And so as Dakota and Ojibwe people, we kind of got caught in that and not with all of the genocide happening and all these policies coming down and bounties on our heads. Um, You know, the fact that we've survived says a lot to our resiliency, our resistance and our our love for this place, this place we call home, Minnesota. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today we're speaking with Jewel Arcorn, a Sisseton Wapitan Nation citizen, community activist, and the executive director for Wichoye Nandagikendan, a language immersion preschool located in Minneapolis. How did you become involved at the school? Can you talk about that and just your role at the school now? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think um, I've always had a, a interest in language revitalization. I think when the the women were first gathering back in the late nineties, I know Muriel likes to call it the women of the round oval table. They would gather at the neighborhood early learning center, um, out like uh, Leila Gagalai, uh, Biggie Chavez, uh, Jennifer Ben Dixon, uh, Leon Thompson, Tammy Shaw. Um, 
are some of the women, Betty Jane Schaff and her mom, Betty Jane, um, they're all women who were like in early childhood. And so they had to ask, I think just my experience working in nonprofit and community gathering and organizing, they had asked me to come and participate. Um, and it wasn't really until 2013 when I was in between jobs that I was asked to be on the board of this program. And I said, yes, because I'd always been involved in some capacity, either helping out with their you know, gatherings or being able to travel with them. Um, and so that is really, in 2013, I came and was initially served on their board, but there was so much work on the administrative side. They were kind of in between directors. And so I said, yeah, I'd help out. <laughs> Earlier, you mentioned uh, food. Uh, could you talk about, you know, the work with food sovereignty uh, at school and just, you know, healthy foods? And- Absolutely, gosh. Um I think that it's always been a, I will say, it's always been a dream for the founding mothers to get their own space. Victoria doesn't have our own space. Um, right now we're housing another program, but we're moving into the direction that Victoria is going to get their own dedicated language immersion space. Long overdue. So we're finally moving in and get all our stakeholders and all the folks involved in that. Part of that dream or part of that vision was to always be able to serve our own foods into the program. So breakfast, lunch, and snack. Um, And we got a grant um, from the Minnesota Department of Health to kind of really focus on food sovereignty. So we've been able to, you know, begin to serve our kids. And I think we're we're always moving in that direction um, so that we can serve our kids like the, uh, what's on the menu sometimes is the bison wild rice meatballs or the turkey wild rice meatballs or we'll have wild rice and blueberries and maple syrup for breakfast um and uh or we'll, we'll serve them with the nuts and the berries and um sweet potatoes and all and squat you know so really kind of uh, introducing our kids at a very young age hopefully before they get introduced to some of our um western snacks you know the potato chips and the pop and all those um high kind of carbs that are kind of detrimental to our health in the long run. And I think part of this initiative is to really not only introduce our our, our children, our babies in the program, but to begin to find food influencers. Each family has a food influencer. It's like, you know, why one fam- whole family will get diabetes because we're all eating at the same table. We're all eating the same food. Well, if we begin to shift that food back to our own traditional foods, there's a correlation to healthier lifestyle outcomes. Um, So it's kind of um, uh, looking at that food initiative. We've always had um, some garden space where the kids kind of come in, they'll do planting, they'll do harvesting. We hope, you know, we've tried to teach them some of the planting and harvesting songs in the early childhood um, by way of language revitalization. And so that whole garden piece and is part of our curriculum. Um, when we get our own space, we'll have a, a outdoor learning environment so that they can, hopefully we'll have our own garden space that will feed our commercial kitchen that we have. That's part of the dream. Um, so that we will be cooking breakfast, lunch, and snack. And then we can bring families in to learn how to cook. Some of our families, because the system has disconnected us from our traditional life ways, we don't know how to harvest or maybe we don't know how to cook some of our foods. And, and so we'd be um, 
the dream or the vision then is to be really introducing all of our families so that we can all have access to this food. We know that our traditional food sometimes is cost prohibitive. Um, so really finding pathways that we can build these kind of course consortiums or collectives where we can all have access to the buffalo that we can get access to. Or we, I just had some great venison and elk and uh, moose um, jerky. And I was um, absolutely wonderful. You know, you you know when your DNA is being fed, right? It doesn't make you're, you don't get tired. You you actually get energized, and that should always be an indicator for the foods we're eating. If it feeds your your DNA, your makeup, you you should have energy instead of you know when we eat a meal and get tired. Um, <laughs> So those are kind of indicators that sometimes we forget about. Um, but the goal then is within this food sovereignty initiative, and I think a lot of na- all over the whole nation is kind of looking at how do we return to our foods that was so healthy for us because we didn't have diabetes and we didn't have these heart diseases and the cancer like we do now. And we know there's a correlation there. Um, and how do we get, how do we return to that point? where we have access to our foods, just like we have access to our language. It's not cost prohibitive, right? So it's it's really amazing all the different angles that the school is tackling. And I, I wanted to ask about the master apprentice model uh, because I know that, uh, you know, been developing these, these language teachers. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Um, I would say we, the, the founding mothers visited Hawaii and um, I think they actually, maybe one or two of them got to go to Maori. I don't know if I say that right, Maori, Maori, um, New Zealand. And so that master apprentice model is based on our relatives from Hawaii and Maori or New Zealand. Um, and we know how endangered those two languages were at one point. And now Hawaii has universities all in the language. New Zealand is recovering their language. Um, so the master apprentice model is a master speaker, somebody that was, is born a first speaker. And then they teach that language to an apprentice. It's like being immersed for all of, you know, three hours a day or more, you know, that particular master will work with this particular apprentice. And that is the model we use. And so with Wichoye, we've developed our, our first master speakers were Lillian Rice and um, Barbara Haska, who was from Canada. She was a Dakota speaker. A lot of the, uh, with the Dakota War in 1862, a lot of the Dakota folks ran, fled up to um, South Canada, Sioux Valley, East Coast. And so that dialect was the same. It was So that so was a Minnesota dialect. At any rate, those were our first two master speakers. And so they worked with, um, like, uh, I think Lillian worked with Hope Flanagan and then um, Brendan Fairbanks, you know, there was Neil McKay. I mean, so I think um, I could, I, there's a lot of people who have come through with Choye and have learned how to be language immersion teachers um, to teach the language. Um, so we Choye has developed well over, you know, 50 immersion teachers, I'd say upwards of 75. And most of them still working in the um, language immersion field in one capacity or another. We at one point did have a relationship with St. Thomas where they they did a, a very grueling 18-month course, but those folks came out with a teaching license to teach um, on top of language. And um, right now, we have a partnership with Fond du Lac where our 
apprentices and teachers will be early childhood certified so they can be in the classroom themselves. So that's our big goal because most of the teachers we put through were not certified early childhood educators. And that's our goal now. And as we look at getting our own space, if we got it tomorrow, we wouldn't have certified teachers in there. So as we look at how we're going to expand, we know doing this foundational, this work now of getting our teachers certified. So all of our teachers are now enrolled in Fond du Lac and they'll get it certified as early childhood educators. So that is the, um, that's what we're doing. You're listening to Native Lights where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today we're speaking with Jewel Arcoran, Assistant Wapitan Nation citizen, community activist, and the executive director for Wichoye Nanda Kikandan, a language immersion preschool located in Minneapolis. How many students and teachers do you have? Right now, um, there is a huge Dakota language teacher shortage. Um, so we don't have a Dakota teacher. Or we did have one that was hired over by the University of Minnesota, now has a, a Dakota immersion program there. So we haven't been able to find a replacement, but we're very close to finding a, a teacher. I know um, there are folks coming up through the uh, education higher ed that are, will be coming up through the Dakota language. Right now we have one lead Dakota teacher. I mean, Ojibwe teacher, and we have um, kind of two apprentice language apprentices in the Ojibwe program, and we hope to um, we hope to uh, like I say hire somebody here, and then by August of this year, so to fill that um, Dakota position. And then, how many students? And so we have we can take up to fifteen if depending on if it's eighteen months old, then we could take up to ten or twelve. If the child is two, if we don't have any 18 months, it's two to five, then we can go up to 15. But um, so we take up to 15 as capacity for each of the classrooms. So there's been many years where we've had capacity in both of the classrooms. You know, I think an average is like 10 to 12 folks. I'm in a meeting. So. I know. Um, so 10 to 12 children in each of the programs. Right now, we just have the Ojibwe classroom and we're at 12. And we have the two apprentices and the one lead teacher. And then we have our elders come in via zoom using technology now like i think dennis jones comes in on the zoom and then hope flanagan actually still comes in works in the classroom on wednesdays and then we have another volunteer that comes in and works in the language so that room is pretty well set so sometimes it seems like the dakota one's going really well and then for a while we couldn't find an ojibwe teacher um and now we don't have a Dakota teacher and the Ojibwe room's really good and cruising forward. Um, and I think the, um, just the, the amount of work that goes into teaching the kids, the, I mean, to be a, to be a language teacher, you have to love children. You have to love the language and pass background check. <laughs> but uh, um, I think that those are the two requirements are loving, really passionate about the language and, passionate about children, just loving the babies, you know, loving our, our community enough to see that the impacts that this language teaching will have on our, our healing and recovery process as community members. So. Jewel Arcorn, great person, really passionate about the work. That's just 
really wonderful. A lot on her plate, and I'm uh, very glad to speak with her today. So thank you to Jewel Arcorn, Assistant Wapiton Nation Citizen, Community Activist, and the Executive Director for Wichoye Nanda Kikendan, a language immersion preschool located in Minneapolis. I'm Cole Primo. And I'm Leah Lam. Miigwech for listening. Kikawapiton. Native Lights, Where Indigenous Voices Shine, is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.